0: The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Our have-tos often thwart our want-tos. There are certain things I want to do in life, but they're hindered by, they're stopped by, they're limited by the things I have to do. And so I'm sure you could pause right now, and I'm sure you could let your imagination run about all the things you want to do in life. And then you could immediately click over and start going through the list of all the things you have to get done in life. And very often, there is a tension between your have-tos and your want-tos. And so this really affects our, uh, our uh, responsibility or our duty as human beings. We, we have a sense of, I want to care about others. I want to be there for others. I I want to get involved in the needs of other people's lives. Uh, When I turn on the news and I see crises all around the world, I want to help. I I would love to go on a trip where I can go and help you know, um, grow a garden for people who are hungry and help serve them. But then I have a long list of have-tos. I mean, tomorrow my kids are still going to want a meal on the table and I gotta make sure that I do something to provide that food. I have to do that versus what I want to do. And so there's this kind of clashing between my want to's and my have to's. And I felt like this was really uh, illustrated best in a recent experience I had. Uh, Our family was coming home from a long trip. We had been traveling for many hours. It was late at night. I mean, like about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, And if you're ever, if you're somebody who travels, with uh, maybe you have a lot of daughters, I have three. And so there's this kind of like little thing that goes on w- when long trips. We had to get a lot of bathroom breaks. And so we were making great time we were coming home, we were hauling. We, we had, had to stop for quite a while. So I was like, yes, we're gonna make it home. Uh, but we were also getting really hungry because we hadn't stopped for dinner. It was 11 o'clock at night. Um, and so we were like, we, we really, we need to stop. We need to get something to eat. And, and so we're driving down the road and we're like, you know, we gotta pull over. We gotta get something to eat. My kids really had to use a, re- a restroom. So we pull over, we go to this fast food chain. We go in and I'm not kidding you. We, we go into this, this restaurant and we're gonna buy food. And they have all the tables arranged to block people from getting anywhere near the bathrooms. So I, I mean, I'm in a pretty strong personality. So I just went over there and I was like, I was gonna start pushing the tables out of the way. And I was like, hey, uh, my girls really have to go to the bathroom. They're like, I'm sorry, we have to keep those there. Do you hear it? The manager told us, and I was like, seriously, like, there, there's a reason these tables are blocking my kids from using your bathroom. Like, I was like, we're going to buy food. Just let us have use of your bathroom. There's going to be a problem. Or you're going to be cleaning up a mess. All right, all right. So, I'm not going to be a jerk. So, I'm just, I'm trying to insist over and over. And finally, they're like, you know what? There's a convenience store right around the corner just go over there use their bathroom like yeah but your bathroom is there like right there and and what i'm expressing is this they were given uh, instruction of a have-to. You have to follow our policy. We want the doors blocked off so that people can't access a bathroom this late at night. And so I just let kind of my imagination, run. Right, I started thinking, well, under what reason would you do that? Well, maybe they cleaned the bathrooms and they didn't want the vagabonds who show up at 11 o'clock at night dirtying their bathrooms. Like, I mean, like my family, right? Um, dirtying their bathroom and it, because it might cost them more money, right? Or maybe the clientele that comes in to use the restaurant late at night. Maybe they make bigger messes in the bathroom. I I don't know. But clearly, somebody in a position of authority to make those kind of decisions uh, calculated um, this. It is far better to lose a few customers late at night than to have the inconvenience of an expense of cleaning our bathrooms more than one time between 11 and whatever time they're going to open them back up. They, they did a business calculation determining that the have to is better than the want to. And here's the, the end result, right? There are moments when our have to gets in the way of our want to because it's an inconvenient resp- uh, op- uh, obligation. It's, it's inconvenient for us to help other people. Now, in the business world, there's something called customer service which is not what we experience, right? You're all like with me. You're like, yeah, that was not good customer service. Good basic customer service, which everybody fundamentally understands, particularly if you're on the side of receiving it, it goes like this. Here's customer service. Provide an exceptional service or product in a timely manner with a smile, right? That's kind of customer service. Now, here's why you do that. Because if you provide good customer service, the customers with money will buy more stuff. So I will serve you well in a timely manner with a smile on my face because I know that the end result means you will serve my interest. You'll give me money. Now that is a great business model. Only a bad business uh, leader or owner would offer exceptional service or an exceptional product with in a timely manner with a smile on their face and not expect anything in return. Right, like, yes, I will deliver you a top-notch wash machine and dryer to your house with a smile on my face by tonight, and then you don't have to pay me, right? Nobody's gonna do that. It makes a great business model. It makes a terrible life model. But most of us live that way. I will do this for you. I will offer you this service in a timely manner with a smile on my face so long as you give me this in return, we do it in relationships. We do it with our neighbors. We do it with our classmates. We do it in romantic relationships. Uh, this is the way we define relationships. I will do this for you, ha- happy and serve you, if you in turn do this for me. Or at the very least, I will do this for you if it makes me feel a certain way. See, we have a transactional relationship with what we offer people. Our service comes with strings attached. The danger of this is we refuse to be inconvenienced with the possibility that one of those strings gets cut, meaning we're not getting what we want in return. So now I want to bring you to a biblical narrative, meaning a story recorded in the Bible. It's a story of the early church. It's set, you know, somewhere around 30, 30 to 35 AD, first century uh, world history. And so you have this early church. Jesus just recently died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he gave a mandate to his closest friends and followers to take the message of his message of good news and spread it with the world. And so they begin to preach the message of Jesus Christ. Rapidly, people all across the city that they're in, the city of Jerusalem, begin to believe in Jesus. Many people are coming. As a result of many people coming and believing in Jesus, the message continues to spread. More people are attracted. As people come in, they start to meet the needs and care for people who are hurting, hungry, and broke. So now they start to attract more and more hurting, broken, and hungry people. As a result, the church is both expressing a message of hope and helping feed hungry, hurting people. That's where our story is going to pick up. It's found in the book of Acts, this book that records the history of this early church. And Acts chapter 6 is right where that story picks up. It's this kind of moment where the church has been taking care of hungry people and something goes terribly wrong. Here it is, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among hard feelings like, like I could relate to this. Like standing there with my girls and my wife, who we need to use a restroom, I had hard feelings toward the workers in there. Like you, they, that was horribly irritating. Like seriously, come on. But they, they have legitimate, they have a little bit more of a gripe than I did, you know, like there was a bathroom right around the corner. Hard feelings developed among the Greek speaking believers. They're called Hellenists, all right? Now, quick we're going to give you a little parenthetical understanding of what's going on here. So there's this kind of two groups of people right now that are coming into the local church, meaning the community of new believers. They, these Greek-speaking believers are called Hellenists, and that means they're converts. They're, they're they don't belong within the Jewish community. They're outsiders. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish community, they they had rules and laws about how they practiced religion. And so if you were one of them, you were considered unclean. You weren't allowed in their home. They almost couldn't even touch you. So these Greek-speaking new believers who are now coming around Jewish converts to Christianity are considered outsiders. But they have moved to Jerusalem to join the community. And there was uh, hard feelings between these Greek-speaking believers uh, toward the Hebrew-speaking believers, meaning these converts who were part of the Jewish community, all right, who were like, this is where they're from, this is where they belong, because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food line. So here's what was happening. The early church was uh, gathering finances, we just read about that in an earlier chapter, the generosity of a guy like Barnabas, who sold a plot of land, he gave the money, the money was then used to buy a whole bunch of food, and then they would bring food and they would feed hungry people. So all these widows who were the most marginalized and most economically um, de- deprived in, in their surrounding community would come and they would receive food. And so, but here's what was happening. The, um, the people who were distributing the food were first giving the food out to uh, the, the Jewish converts to Christianity, the, the women who kind of belonged. They were on the inside. They were kind of the, uh, the elitists within the group they were getting the first bags of groceries and then the greek speaking widows the ones who were on the outside looking in were being marginalized mistreated and discriminated against so now you have this racial tension that is quickly coming to the service in a church that's only been in existence maybe a few weeks maybe a few months and and this moment has an op i mean you could see it right you could if you hear it you're like this could divide the church you could have trouble you could have name calling. You could have th- these people pulling out and being like, I'm sick and tired of the church, man. They mistreat me. They, didn't, they weren't there when I needed them. You know, I don't feel like I belong. They, they pointed fingers. They made me feel bad. They made me look bad. They didn't take care of me. They didn't take care of my mom when I needed her, when, when they really, she needed them most. You could hear how this conflict could begin to stir. It, it stirs in our own nation, right? Racial tension, uh, socioeconomic tension, people who are divided by uh, classes of how much money they make. And that's what's going on in this early church. What's, what's interesting, though, is this isn't how the story ends. You could see how this could be a really troublesome situation, but the story actually makes a great turn. Let me keep reading for you. So the 12, th- that's the, uh, those are the leaders of the early church, the, the 12 apostles, they gathered all the disciples together. They got the whole church together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will turn their responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here's what somebody suggested. You, You heard it right there. Somebody in the group goes like this. You know what? You know what the problem is? Our leaders are not helping feed the widows. They need to do more. All they're doing is walk around preaching and telling people about Jesus. They need to actually be leading and making sure the widows are fed. And so you know what? That group that's already serving needs to start serving more. That was their solution. And so they said, wait, 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 hold up, hold up. This is a bad idea, right? Like we can't stop doing what we're already doing in serving you to start also waiting on tables, meaning distributing the food. We can't do it all. So here's what we need. We need some of you to get involved in helping others. Some of you who already are busy doing your own lives, you got your own thing going, you need to help and become part of the answer, part of the solution. And I love this picture. I love the response because when you first hear it, you're kind of like, wait, what? This group of leaders pauses and says, look, we have a responsibility. We can't stop doing what we're doing to become the answer for everything. Every one of you can become part of the solution. I know it sounds a little inconvenient. I know you all have things you have to do, but you want us to get involved in this response, and the way we're gonna respond is by getting you to not only take on your have-tos, but take on the want-tos. And and so here's how this applies to our life today, right? We're jumping ahead 2,000 years, and we're saying, believe it or not, we experience similar racial and socioeconomic tensions. Today, in our own communities, there are issues where there are hurting, hungry people who need resources. There are issues across the globe where people are saying, hey, someone's being overlooked. Someone's being discriminated against. You have resources that we need. Somebody help. And their instinct is to point to people that are already actively involved and saying, you should do more. But the reality is there's a very clear biblical principle that jumps off these pages and actually it puts a responsibility on every one of us. And so the principle is this. This is what I encourage you to write down as you're taking notes today. Whether you use the, the program or you use a smartphone or tablet, if you're online with us and you can take notes right in the chat session. Here's what I encourage you to write down. Serve first with no strings attached. We're using the Olympic metaphor. The Olympics just recently came to an end. And so the metaphor is this. We've got to be willing to give our best, to do our best, to offer something first before we expect any results. So the Olympians, when they're little kids, they're out there working hard, they're out there training, they're out there giving their best with no promise that they're ever gonna become Olympic athletes. In turn, there are certain things that we have to be willing to do first even if it means we're willing to be the first to fail with the possibility that the effort we're contributing will become a seed that grows into a tree that produces great fruit. There are certain things that we should be doing first without expecting or demanding results, but believing that if we do them first, we could see a great outcome. Now, our instinct is not to serve first. Our instinct is to be served first. And if By chance, we do serve first. We always do it expecting something in return. Why? Because you and I are hardwired. We we have an instinct inside of us called sin. Sin drives us to be consumed with ourselves. We think about ourselves first. We, in fact, you could go so far as to say, if any of us have a God, it's me. I am my God, I I worship myself, I worship my desires. I've made an idol of my own interests, of my own instincts, of my own desires. Sin is a term that biblical authors use to explain this driving force inside of every one of us that pushes us toward meeting our own wants, needs, and desires, but in turn, not only ignoring others, but far worse, ignoring God. Sin drives us away from God toward pursuing our own, what, what, does, what drives our own desires. As a result, sin cuts us off from relationship with God, leaving us living a life, consumed with ourselves, serving ourselves first, and obviously, right, we're getting consumed with selfishness, meaning our own needs and desires, and even our philanthropy, meaning even our benevolence or our desire to help is actually selfish right? You ask most people why they do good things, because it makes them feel good. They like how it, how they feel. They, they like the meaning it gives them. See, they're doing it, but they're not doing it from a a purely selfless motivation. It's always what they can get out of it. Sin doesn't just cut us off from relationship with God. Sin wrecks our lives, and it leaves us on a crash course with eternal judgment, meaning at the end of our life, we stand before God condemned because we lived our life driven by sin, sin which not only cuts us off from God, but comes with a great eternal consequence. God, unwilling to leave us on a crash course with eternal suffering, intervened in our story, got involved in every one of our lives. And here's what God does. God comes into our world, becomes one of us with a very clear mission to serve without expecting anything in return. In fact, he goes so far as to say that Jesus is answering a question and he says this, whoever wants to be served, be first, I'm sorry, and I'm reading from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. This author, Matthew, records, he was there. He heard Jesus say this. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, with no strings attached, comes into the world to serve first. He gives his life. He takes the consequence for our sin. He takes our eternal judgment on himself so that when he dies, he dies once for all. He dies in our place, paying the price for the death sentence we deserve so that when he died, he died once for all so that anyone who would believe in Jesus could be forgiven of their sins and given new life. So here's what happens, right? Jesus Christ comes to serve, not to be served. And in serving, he gives his life as the payment for the debt we owed in eternal judgment. When we believe in Jesus Christ by faith, our debt is paid, right? Our sins are forgiven and we receive new life. Now, what does that actually look like? When I believe in Jesus and I receive new life, what's going on is this, God's eternal invisible spirit comes and lives in the spiritual part of who I am. Not in my mind or my emotions or even my heart, he comes, his spirit is reunited with my spirit. And when God's spirit is alive in my spirit, I am filled I am, I am filled with an abundance of forgiveness. I'm filled with an abundance of joy. In essence, the service of God overwhelms me. He overwhelms my selfishness. He transforms my nature so that I am no longer what I once was. I am no longer hardwired to be a me first kind of person. He overwhelms my instinct of selfishness with a spirit that comes from God that proves that God is selfless. Now, here's what happens. I want you to think about this. Imagine a business that had so much money that they decided that with the abundance of their resources, they were going to provide exceptional products and service in a timely manner with a smile on their face but never ask for anything in return. And their motivation, they would inspire every employee. They would still make payroll. They would still have their employees work. And they would say, look, we get the privilege of providing this incredible product or this incredible service because we have so much we're giving back, right? The employees would have a completely different attitude, wouldn't they? Because... They're not motivated by a dollar amount or a bottom line. They're saying, we get the privilege of doing this. Now, that's how you should live every day of your life. God so filled your life, in essence, he made a deposit into your bank account. Your spiritual bank account is so full. You have so much, you're on a trajectory, instead of being on your, living a life on a crash course with eternal judgment, you are now living your life full of the riches of God's grace. Forgiven of sin, given new life with the promise of paradise in eternity. The riches of heaven await you. There's nothing anyone can ever take from you that would make you less, nor is there anything anyone can ever add to you that would make you more. Doesn't matter what you buy, you won't be worth more. No matter what somebody steals from you, you won't be worth less. If you don't have the latest fashions, you are no worth no more or less to God. You are precious. You are a treasure of heaven. God loves you and God is for you. Now imagine you go out and live your life knowing that you have this incredible, you have the incredible riches of God at your disposal. Now you begin to serve people first with no strings attached. Because there's nothing someone could ever do for you that would ever add to your life. Nor is there any way you could ever be cheated that would ever take from your life. Now, let me give you one more metaphor to help keep this thought going. Imagine at the beginning of your career, a business owner, an employer said, you know what? How much money do you wanna make the rest of your life? And so you, he says, calculate how much you wanna make for your entire career. And so you go home, and you do the math, and you figure it out, and you come back with a shocking number. And you go, here here you go. And that that employer doesn't bat an eye. Says, hang on a moment. Pulls out his checkbook, writes you an entire check for your service for the rest of your career. He gives you one paycheck. and says, all right, now here's the deal. You're going to work for me. We already agree upon your job description. Now here's the deal, though. Don't come back 30 years from now and come begging me for more. I've given you more than anything you wanted. I've given it to you, right? Now, from that point on, you're a servant. Not, 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 not a slave, but not under obligation, but you serve at the disposal of your employer. And you do it happily. You have more than enough. That's how we are toward God. We are servants of God. He gave us more than enough. He's provided everything for life and living. So now I don't have this attitude of I'm doing this for God. I'm a servant of God. He bought me. He, he rescued me. He's given me life. And now I serve at his disposal, which means this. I want to I read to you a little bit more of this story so that this makes a little more sense. Let me go back to that verse three and four of Acts chapter six. This is what the disciples say. They say, choose seven men from among yourselves from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Here is the focus. To serve first, we have to serve God by serving others. Because I am a servant of God, I express that service serving others. God has already given me the paycheck. He's given me new life. He's forgiven me of sin. He's rescued me from eternal judgment. Because he bought me, he now says, look, the way you're going to serve me is by serving others first with no strings attached. You're going to love them expecting nothing in return. You're going to care for people. You're going to serve people. You're going to go out of your way, but you're never going to expect them to do anything for you. I have already done it all for you. I served you, I rescued you, I loved you, I have lavished the wealth of heaven on you. So now everything you do is gonna flow out of the paycheck I've already given you. I've already made you rich, I've already blessed you, I've already put my favor on you. Now I want you to go out and I want you to show and share my love with people who have never experienced the generosity of heaven. You are gonna be the expression of my service. You are gonna demonstrate to others that I came serving first. The only way they're ever gonna know my love is through you. So now you serve God by serving others. Let's keep going here. Uh, Let me read verse five and six. This is what happens. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, Procurus, Nachnor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas from Antioch, and a convert to Judaism. All right, you got the list? No big deal. Chose these seven guys. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Here's what's important from this list. As you begin to serve God by serving others, you serve first by doing your part, by being your part, meaning every one of us have to know our part in serving God. They were quick to recognize, we can't do it all. And and let me just say this, as pastors within the church, I realize that I can't do it all. I can't be at every hospital visit. I can't pray for every person that needs to be prayed for. I can't perform every wedding ceremony. I can't go to every funeral, right? Like at some point, there's only so many hours in a day. So I have to recognize what is my unique part within the kingdom of God. And then I, here's my job, is to train my, the pastors to help you find your part and begin to do your part. And, and the only way you're gonna do your part is if you first become your part. Some of you, you here's, here's the principle, right? If you think about you like being a part of the body, right? We, we use the metaphor of a body within the church community. And so first you have to understand what part you are and then begin to function in that part. Here's the beauty, God has uniquely designed you, crafted you and made you for a unique purpose. You belong, you are necessary, you have a responsibility. So you have both a role and a responsibility so that you can uh, live out this passage. Uh, there's a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in Ephesus where he makes this point. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, meaning God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has uniquely designed every one of us in a specific way from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, he designed you to become a unique part within the body of Christ so that you can begin to do your part. So here's your responsibility, to discover what your unique role is and then actually do it with the understanding that this is not just an opportunity, but this is your obligation. If you are a Jesus follower... You don't just get the privilege of serving, you have to serve. Look, I try to think of a lot of different ways I could say that so it would sound a little more gentle, but I gotta just be direct with you. If you are a Christian, you should become like Jesus. Jesus who said in Matthew 20, verse 28, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life. If you're becoming like Christ, at some point, you've got to overcome the hurdle that everything is about you and start living your life in such a way of making it about others and recognize that you are commanded to serve. Your reward is waiting for you. Paychecks already been deposited, and your eternal reward is waiting for you. Right now, while you live on earth, this is your work day. You're a servant of God. Get to work. I should, I mean, to be quite frank with you, as I was reading this, I was like, you know what? People shouldn't even really need their pastor to inspire them. This is our duty. This is your obligation. Jesus paid his life on a cross to give you new life. Now let's get to work. We have a a responsibility. All right. When we serve, we have to first become our part, and then we have to do our part, and we do it with joy. We provide an exceptional product and service in a timely manner with a smile on our face with no strings attached. That's the way we live our lives uh, as we live out the Christian faith. Now, let me give you uh, another challenge I not only know that we have to be our part and do our part, but here's the reality. We have a responsibility to prefer others above ourselves. Here's what happens when people all start doing their part. It's found in verse seven of the story. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to faith. The church just began to continue to grow. There was one guy who was among this list that he was one of these um, first guys that was called out from that group and he began to oversee the distribution of food but as he began to distribute food showing the love of god he started telling people why they were doing it he became a preacher his name was stephen and the story goes like this and we're going to just read a little bit to you it's found in acts chapter 7 verse 59 while they were stoning Stephen. He got killed because he was feeding widows, telling people about Jesus. Other religious people got angry at him and they decided to kill him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul was there giving approval to his death. To serve first, prefer others above yourself. Here's what this simply means. Customer service means that I will serve you knowing that you will give something in return. Christian service is a willingness to be inconvenienced even to the point of death while expecting nothing in return because I've already been filled up and paid in full. It means that I recognize that my responsibility on this earth while it is day is to serve people so that they will discover that God loves them. It's my responsibility to live my life in such a way that people discover the hope of Jesus Christ. So we live our lives preferring others. What this means, this is really the picture here. I have calculated and done the math. And to me, serving you is more important than serving my own interests. Most businesses and most people approach others with a calculated treatment. What can you do for me? We calculate the worth of people and determine that no matter what I think you're worth, I've calculated because of God's spirit alive in my heart that I will treat you as worth more than my own self-interest. Did you catch that? That means every single person you interact with there is a calculated formula in your heart that you treat them as valuable. As a result, you're willing to serve them first, expecting nothing in return. Jesus treated you that way. He calculated your worth and determined that you are precious in the eyes of God, and he was willing to give his life to purchase you from eternal judgment and ruin, to give you the opportunity to receive new life. He didn't demand it of you. He didn't shove it down your throat. He simply offers it. He gave and served first expecting nothing, but simply offered it. So many of us, we're so consumed with ourselves because we feel like no one else is looking out for us. Jesus looked out for you. For, for some of you right now, this is your life-changing moment. This is going to radically shift the entire focus of your life when you are willing to surrender your life and say, I accept a new relationship with Jesus Christ, recognizing that he served me first. He doesn't demand it of me. He offers it to me. And for some of you, you're, this is your moment where you're going to receive Through faith in Jesus Christ, a new life by allowing his spirit to enter into your spirit as you repent of your old way of living. So I want you to take a moment right now and for you to begin to pray. For others of you, you believe in Jesus, but you're still allowing a me first mentality to sabotage the usefulness that God has put in your life, which is he has bought you. He has given you the paycheck of eternal life. and Now he's saying you need to start serving first with no strings attached. Would you pause and allow the Spirit of God to begin to speak to your heart and give you that first step you need to take as you begin to serve first, demanding nothing in return? Would you allow God's Spirit to begin to speak to you right now? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.